So who will have the final say? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of October's book Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Rhys. So each month I take a book I've never read, I split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below, or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of Wide Sargasso Sea from page 77, which is exactly halfway through the book. Now remember Rochester has just found out in a letter that his wife may have, quote, bad blood and be mad. He goes off to the forest to have a thing. He thinks of the forest, quote, it is hostile and remembers tripping over a fallen log swarming with white ants. This idea of hidden menace is articulated and related to his next thought. Quote, how can one discover truth, I thought, and that thought led me nowhere. No one would tell me the truth. Just like the white ants, the menace is hidden. Now, I can't help associating the vision of the white cockroach to these white ants. It reminds me of the swarm of white colonizers disrupting the lives of not only the inhabitants of the Caribbean, but also Africa. Here is the whole beautiful extract in full. Quote, I began to walk very quickly, then stopped, because the light was different, a green light. I had reached the forest, and you cannot mistake the forest, it is hostile. The path was overgrown, but it was possible to follow it. I went on without looking at the tall trees on either side. Once I stepped over a fallen log, swarming with white ants. How can one discover truth, I thought, and that thought led me nowhere. No one would tell me the truth, not my father, nor Richard Mason, certainly not the girl I had married. I stood still, so sure I was being watched that I looked over my shoulder. Nothing but the trees and green light under the trees. A track was just visible and I went on, glancing from side to side and sometimes quickly behind me. This was why I stubbed my foot on a stone and nearly fell. The stone I had tripped on was not a boulder but part of a paved road. There had been a paved road through this forest. The track led to a large clear space. Here were the ruins of a stone house and round the ruins rose trees that had grown to an incredible height. At the back of the ruins, a wild orange tree covered with fruit, the leaves a dark green. A beautiful place and calm, so calm that it seemed foolish to think or plan. What had I to think about and how could I plan? Under the orange tree, I noticed little bunches of flowers tied with grass. I don't know how long it was before I began to feel chilly. The light had changed and the shadows were long. I'd better get back before dark, I thought. Then I saw a little girl carrying a large basket on her head. I met her eyes and to my astonishment, she screamed loudly, threw up her arms and ran. The basket fell off. I called after her, but she screamed again and ran faster. She sobbed as she ran, a small frightened sound. Then she disappeared. I must be within a few minutes of the path, I thought, but after I had walked for what seemed a long time, I found that the undergrowth and creepers caught at my legs and the trees closed over my head. I decided to go back to the clearing and start again with the same result. It was getting dark. It was useless to tell myself that I was not far from the house. 
I was lost and afraid among these enemy trees. In such exquisite writing, the image of the orange tree, the flowers and the decayed house, they conjure up a whole world in my mind. The natural landscape is an enemy to this foreigner, Rochester, although he's never called Rochester. Antoinette seems to be very relaxed in her natural landscape, but not him. Did nature overtaking this abandoned house remind you of the Calubria estate when it was abandoned by the finances of the slave owners? I definitely felt reverberations from that history. Maybe skip ahead 30 seconds if you have not yet read Jane Eyre, but it also reminds me of the future of Thornfield Hall, especially the scene where Jane comes across the burnt out wreckage and discovers Rochester. And who is that child? Well, I think that's the dream that Antoinette had at the beginning of the novel. She dreams about being in this forest area and seeing this gentleman. Now, Baptiste says the house belongs to the priest Père Lilièvre, but he denies the road which Rochester believes was built by the French colonists. It is certainly Antoinette. Do you remember her dream in the first half? Here's the full quote from page 11. Quote, I went to bed early and slept at once. I dreamed that I was walking in the forest, not alone. Someone who hated me was with me, out of sight. I could hear heavy footsteps coming closer. And though I struggled and screamed, I could not move. I woke crying. The covering sheet was on the floor and my mother was looking down at me. Continuing the narrative, they head back to Grambois. Quote, it was nearly dark when we were back on the red clay path. Red clay is quite a big feature of this novel. There'll be more on that later. It reminds me of the fire red and the red of the breast of a robin. Rochester reads up on the obeyer in his book, The Glittering Coronet of Isles. Quote, a zombie is a dead person who seems to be alive. Now, this is exactly what Antoinette declared herself to be when she told him to tell her to die. Remember this quote from part one? Antoinette says, say die and watch me die. And Rochester retorts with, quote, die then, die. I watched her die many times. Now, the title of the book that he is reading is interesting. I'm assuming it's a British publication. It's so dismissive. These islands are just a mere decoration, a coronet in the British Empire, something that sparkles, something ephemeral. He then reads and learns that the flowers left at the priest's house may be an offering to a zombie. Perhaps that little girl is a zombie. The memory of Antoinette's dream, perhaps she is the spirit of what was once Antoinette. Maybe it's far-fetched, but maybe there is some kind of communication between Antoinette's dream and the reality now. So the narration moves to Antoinette's first person. She rides to Christophine's after not looking up to see Rochester at the window, probably with that coronet book still. She travels past some rocks called The Dead Ones that spooks her out, and it spooks her horse too, Preston. And Antoinette tells Christophine he doesn't love her. And Christophine advises to leave him, but Antoinette rejects the idea and asks if anything else can be done. Since Rochester has all her money now, Christophine advises her to ask for money to visit a relation in Martinique and then Scarpa. Christophine wonders whether England actually exists. Quote, I know what I see with my eyes and I never see it. This is a very interesting empirical view of the world. 
that's only based on what you can actually see. Christophine goes on to explain how she doesn't have the power to make Mr. Rochester love Antoinette, even through the power of Bea, the magic of that region. Antoinette explains how Mr. Rochester now calls her Bertha. He's using language to control her, to give her a new identity, to make it easier to separate her from the Antoinette he was initially attracted to. Antoinette also explains that she can't go anywhere else because he would never give her the money. Now, in a reference to the opening chapter, Christophine says that Mr. Mason is in love with money. She says, quote, Money have pretty face for everybody, but for that man, money pretty like pretty self. He can't see nothing else. I think he's initially blinded by Antoinette's prettiness and now blinded by money. His inability to see below the surface of things is his downfall. The perils of a one-track mind. Now, Christophine finally complies with Antoinette's request and creates a concoction for Antoinette. But Antoinette hears a cock crow and in an echo of the biblical story wonders whether she may have been betrayed. Then we move to Mr. Rochester's point of view. He receives another letter from Daniel delivered by Amelie which states that he wants Mr. Rochester to visit. And as if to answer my comment previously about how he has a one-tracked mind, we have this interior thought that articulates his inability to modify his view of the world. Quote, I sat on the veranda with my back to the sea and it was as if I had done it all my life. I could not imagine different weather or a different sky. I knew the shape of the mountains as well as I knew the shape of the two brown jugs filled with white sweet scented flowers on the wooden table. I knew that the girl, imagining Amelie whom he has called for, would be wearing a white dress, brown and white she would be. Her curls, her white girl's hair, she called it, half covered with a red handkerchief, her feet bare. There would be the sky and the mountains, the flowers and the girl, and the feeling that all this was a nightmare, the faint consoling hope that I might wake up. He has this cast iron view of the surface details of the world, which are removable. Now, when Amelie arrives, he asks for further letters from Daniel to be handed back. He asks about Daniel's parentage and his history. And when Amelie says that both his parents were, quote, coloured, which conflicts with Mr. Rochester's prior information and worldview, he's enraged with her, quote, contempt for long ago. Now, Daniel comes to visit Rochester. He tells of his father, Alexander, being a horrible man. He also paints Christophine in a very bad light, quote, she is a bad, a bear woman and will lie to you more than your wife. He also implies that his half-brother, Sandy, slept with Antoinette. Quote, Don't waste your anger on me, sir. It's not I fool you. It's I wish to open your eyes. Some very sensitive writing here. Daniel is playing on Rochester's vulnerabilities. We've already seen how Rochester can only see the surface of things. Here, Daniel is saying, I can show you the truth of things beneath the surface. This must be very tempting to a man in Rochester's position. I wonder how he will react. Will he believe Daniel or will he reject him? Now, Daniel asks for a 500 pound bribe to keep quiet about it and Rochester refuses. On the surface, Rochester seems to reject Daniel's ideas, but perhaps he will carry them with him internally and his doubts will increase his hatred for Antoinette. Quote, the telescope was pushed to one side of the table, making room for a decanter half full of rum and two glasses on a tarnished silver tray. I listened to the ceaseless night noises outside and watched the procession of small moths and beetles fly into the candle flames, then poured out a drink of rum and swallowed. At once the night noises drew away, became distant, bearable, even pleasant. Now to me, this pushing aside of the scientific, observational and rational tool, 
the telescope in favour of the very human prism of drink. An irrational force shows the inner decision that Rochester has taken. He is going to push aside cold, hard reality in favour of the very human rumour making and storytelling that he is confronted with. He has made a pact with Daniel. He may not have paid his bribe, but he has taken his words to heart. And there, with those beetles sacrificing themselves to the flames, we have the clear foreshadowing of Antoinette's demise. Now, Rochester confronts Antoinette with Daniel's allegations. She tells him he is a liar and not to be trusted. She tells the truth about her mother and her family. And when he tells her that he feels the country is against him and on her side, she refutes this by saying, quote, It is not for you and not for me. It has nothing to do with either of us. That is why you're afraid of it, because it is something else. I found that out long ago when I was a child. I loved it because I had nothing else to love, but it is as indifferent as this God you call on so often. She explains how alone her mother was after Antoinette's father died, and then her second marriage to Mr Mason was also lonely, since he was often away. She recounts how after the beautiful house at Calubri was destroyed, it broke her mother, and Antoinette then recounts how she went to visit her mother, but she was rejected by her in a very drunken state. Christophine berates her for visiting her mother, and during this chat, Mr Rochester seems to be drinking more and more rum. This can't be good for his powers of reason, symbolised by that telescope, and pushed aside to make room for that rum. Antoinette says that using the words Bertha to name her rather than Antoinette, quote, doesn't matter since words have made no difference to his understanding of her plight. She resignedly realises that he is not listening to her words, and so that is why his renaming of her, quote, doesn't matter. She has fallen into his trap quite clearly. By renaming her, he is increasing his control over her. Words do matter. Now she says she's put this white powder on the floor, quote, to keep cockroaches away. And as she offers him drink, he remarks to himself in the narration, quote, she need not have done what she did to me. I will always swear that she need not have done it. When she handed me the glass, she was smiling. Now, is this Christophine's a bare concoction that she's just made him drink, a love potion? Or maybe Christophine has concocted something else. He wakes up sick and discovers his empty wine glass, which he notes has a bitter taste to the dregs. He runs away to the ruined house and the orange tree where he previously saw the young girl. Then... He comes back and has a sexual encounter with Amelie, ironically, since it's Antoinette wanted this love potion to be made. The love potion concocted by Christophine has worked, but it's on the wrong recipient. Now Antoinette can hear these shenanigans between the thin partitioned walls. He offers Amelie money as some kind of guilt payment, which she takes and she receives without joy. Amelie says she wants to leave to become a dressmaker, joining her sister in Demerara and then heading off to Rio. Now Rochester hears Antoinette's footsteps leave the house. She leaves for three days. During this time, Rochester writes to his friend, Mr. Fraser, who lives in Spanish town. He writes to say he has informed the police in his town that if Christophine, quote, gets up to any of her nonsense, they'll be prepared and, quote, she won't get off lightly. He really hates this Christophine character. He's scared of her mystical bear power and perhaps he dislikes the matriarchal power she has over his wife. And it's interesting that he misnames her Josephine or Christophine in his letter to Mr. Cosway as if by changing her name too, he will remove some of her power. Now, three days later, Antoinette returns to the house. She's furious. 
and when he calls her Bertha, she says, quote, Bertha is not my name. You're trying to make me into someone else. Calling me by another name, I know that's a bear too. Words do matter. She tells him, quote, I love this place and you have made it into a place I hate. She remarks again on his affair with Amelie. She says, quote, is she so much prettier than I am? Don't you love me at all? And he replies, no, I do not. And then we have Rochester's chilling words. She laughed at that, a crazy laugh. Now she tries to hit him with a rum bottle, but Christophine intervenes and soothes Antoinette. Then Christophine tells Rochester how it is. Quote, Everybody know that you marry her for her money and you take it all, and then you want to break her up because you jealous of her. She is more better than you. She have better blood in her and she don't care for money. It's nothing for her. Oh, I see that first time I look at you. You young, but already you hard. You fool the girl. You make her think you can't see the sun for looking at her. And he responds with, quote, it was like that, I thought. Now, Christophine criticises him for changing her name from Antoinette to Marionette, as if he wants to treat her as his puppet. And then Christophine ironically treats him as her puppet, as we see him constantly replay her words in his head. Quote, you want to force her to cry and to speak, and he thinks, force her to cry and to speak. He's repeating her thoughts in his head like a ventriloquist dummy. Christophine really has all the power here. Usually in a situation like this, it would be the white colonial man, but now it's the black indigenous woman. She asks if he can see a way to love her, but he admits he can't. She tells him that the contents of the letters from Daniel Cosway is lies. And when he questions this and says that Antoinette admitted the truth of the letters, that her mother is mad, Christophine says that she was driven to it by a dying son, Pierre, and a husband that left her. Christophine goes on to say to Rochester, quote, you come all the long way to her house. It's you beg her to marry and she love you and she give you all she have. Now you say you don't love her and you break her up. What you do with her money, eh? When she mentions money, he becomes defensive. And when Christophine suggests he give half the dowry back to allow her to stay and marry someone else, Rochester thinks, quote, a jealous rage shot through me. He commands Christophine out of the house, even though she insists it's Antoinette's property. And he retorts with, quote, I assure you it belongs to me now. You'll go or I'll get the men to put you out. He recounts the letter he sent to his friend and he accuses her of giving poison, saying he's kept a sample of the wine as proof. Then Christophine walks out, leaving Antoinette, having given her a sleeping drug. So we see here the true reasons why Rochester took Antoinette to England. One, he is jealous and full of rage at the thought of her remarrying. Two, he would be forced to give back some or all of the money, which would mean that he has a lack of personal wealth, so he's greedy. And also there would be some family dishonour, so he would lose some status. And three, he feels he controls Antoinette. So there's that status, that feeling for control he has. Rochester writes to his father saying that he will leave for Jamaica. He feels that his father and his brother rejected him. In a reference to the biblical denying of Christ, Rochester hears the persistent crowing of a cock. His father has denied him rightful inheritance, a share of it of his brother, but perhaps he is denying who Antoinette is. And in an echo of the removal of the telescope, the rational, to make way for the rum, the irrational, he throws a book at the cockerel. He's literally throwing rationality out. 
Now Rochester worries about being gossiped at and wonders whether he will ever get back to England. He hears the wind blasting through the trees and compares himself to it. Quote, I tell you she loves no one, anyone. I could not touch her, excepting as the hurricane will touch that tree and break it. He goes on, she'll have no lover for I don't want her and she'll see no other. Continuing his thoughts, I'll take her in my arms, my lunatic. She's mad, but mine, mine. What a nasty piece of work he's turned into. He's been poisoned by Daniel Cosway's words and he can't bear the shame of giving her up or the thought of her being with another. And the wind reminds me of the way the colonials uprooted the society of these island nations. Rochester is very emotional at leaving for Jamaica. Antoinette, conversely, is still and silent. Remember, this is still his point of view, his narration. He wants to say sorry to Antoinette, but can't. And we hear his rich thoughts, never spoken to Antoinette, about how he enjoyed the picnic and Mary Galante and of all the things he will miss. He seems so weak to have such a rich interior life and be unable to voice it. He's as trapped as the woman in the attic. Discuss. Now, as if to agree with my statement, he considers the golden treasure in Spanish town. If you reveal, you will lose since that is the law. If you reveal your hand, you may lose it. Now, when Antoinette tells Rochester that she promised a heartbroken little boy that Rochester would stay, he is outraged. Even though the little boy has tried to learn English for him, Rochester is callous and cruel. Quote, he hasn't any English that I can understand. He articulates his hatred for the islands. He's full of anger. I hated the mountains and the hills, the rivers and the rain. I hated the sunsets of whatever colour. I hated its beauty and its magic and the secret I would never know. I hated its indifference and the cruelty which was part of its loveliness. Above all, I hated her. And then we move to part three. Now, Antoinette has the final voice, not Rochester. Jean Rhys is very much on her side, quite rightly. She may be locked up, but her mind is not locked up. It is free to give vent in this final part of the book, part three, let us proceed. So we have a description of Antoinette being locked up in a high room like a caged canary. She doesn't even have the comfort of her own reflection. Remember, she had that at the very beginning of the novel, as I talked about in part one of the podcast. Quote, Looking glass, there is no looking glass here and I don't know what I am like now. I remember watching myself brush my hair and how my eyes looked back at me. The girl I saw was myself, yet not quite myself. Long ago when I was a child and very lonely, I tried to kiss her, but the glass was between us, hard, cold and misted over with my breath. Now they have taken everything away. What am I? What am I doing in this place and who am I? So heartbreaking, she doesn't even have her own reflection. When she manages to escape from her room at night, she describes the house as if it were cardboard. Quote, I open the door and walk into their world. It is, as I always knew, made of cardboard. I've seen it before somewhere, this cardboard world, where everything is coloured brown or dark red or yellow. There has no light in it. As I walk along the passages, I wish I could see what it is behind the cardboard. They tell me I'm in England, but I don't believe them. Dull, grey, boring England in comparison to the rich and vibrant world of the West Indies. Now, she recalls how she saw a young girl, evidently Jane Eyre, in a corridor who thinks she's a ghost. She also recalls asking for her brother to rescue her, but then attacking him with a knife she exchanged for a locket when he says he is unable to legally interfere between her and her husband. Now, the fact that she had to get the knife through in exchange for the locket is another attack on her freedom. She doesn't have access to money anymore. 
She believes that he didn't recognise her because she was not wearing her red dress. And then she recalls seeing Sandy for the last time when she had the, quote, life and death kiss. And she dreams of the red dress laid on the floor like fire. And it reminds her of, quote, something I must do. It's all incredibly tragic, very tragic. Poor Cage Antoinette. She goes on to dream of lighting candles in the red room and how one of them accidentally sets fire to the curtains. She thinks of Aunt Cora, quote, I saw the grandfather clock and Aunt Cora's patchwork, all colours. I saw the orchids and the stephanotis and the jasmine and the tree of life in arms. I saw the chandelier and the red carpet downstairs and the bamboos and the tree ferns, the gold ferns and the silver and the soft green velvet of the moss on the garden wall. I saw my doll's house and the books and the picture of the miller's daughter. I heard the parrot call as he did when he was a stranger. Kiela, Kiela, and the man who hated me was calling too. Bertha, Bertha, the wind caught my hair and it streamed out like wings. It might bear me up, I thought, if I jumped to those hard stones. But when I looked over the edge, I saw the pool at Calibri. Tear was there, she beckoned to me. And when I hesitated, she laughed. I heard her say, you frightened, and I heard the man's voice. Bertha, Bertha, all this I saw and heard in a fraction of a second, and the sky so red. She wakes to see Grace pool next to her, but she decides she knows what she must do. And there the novel ends. So, first impressions on finishing the novel. It's extraordinarily dense and beautifully written. When you consider it's only 150 pages long, it's amazing how much detail has been packed into it, how many ideas. I thought I'd have it finished in a week. It's taken a month. The density of the writing and the breadth of the ideas is astonishing. And unpicking and unravelling the themes and ideas in each vision and depiction took such a long time. Truly breathtaking, incredible achievement, I think. I will never think of Jane Eyre in the same way. I won't think of Rochester in the same way or Bertha again in the same light. It's literally changed the book for me. So that is a remarkable achievement. It was a difficult book, but I think if it's a choice between loving it, liking it, and it's not for me, I think it would have to be a love. So there were some questions raised in the first half answered by the end of the novel. I'm really glad that Antoinette had the final word in the novel. She literally spoke with the rage of that fire. It's clear that she was forcibly removed from the Caribbean by Rochester. And the question of whether she will see her half-brother, Richard Mason, was answered in the final few pages. She did see him, but she was a fractured person and wasn't able to communicate her request. She wasn't recognised by her brother. In my question, how will Christophine react to Rochester? Will she put a curse on him? I hoped so, but it was far-fetched. Unfortunately, it was a obeyer medicine that really backfired because he ended up having a relationship with Amelie, which really caused Antoinette so much distress. And unfortunately, Christophine was forced to exit Antoinette's life by his threats. Remember the quote, she walked away without looking back. Now, I never did feel any sympathy with Mr. Rochester. He enslaved Antoinette. He was greedy for money, he didn't want to lose face and was jealous of the idea of her being happy with another man. 
I did question whether Rochester's encroachment into Antoinette's narration would increase and would he have the final voice in the last part of the book. I thought he may gain the narratorial power by dominating the first person narration and that Antoinette's narratorial voice would diminish. But conversely, as she moves to England and he gains power over her, her voice actually becomes stronger until we have her metaphorically speaking with fire in her final thoughts of what she must do. So overall, I thought it was a fabulous read. It really gave voice to a character in Jane Eyre that was voiceless. It reminded me of the horrific and misogynistic witch trials that occurred in the 14th, 15th century in England and elsewhere in Europe and in America, and I'm sure many parts of the world. She's locked away and banished to a life of misery just because she doesn't fit the ideal of woman in Rochester's eyes. Would I recommend it to a friend? Yes, I definitely would. Anyone who has read Jane Eyre and has become doughy-eyed over her romance with Rochester and would like a reality check about Bertha, you might want to read this book. There's some very interesting ideas to come out of the book. One of the most interesting was maybe the idea that, although there was plot, because I knew about the plot, plot wasn't a real driver for this book. And that was a really nice reading experience, just for the description and the articulation of the inner feelings rather than driving this plot. Yes, we do see her downfall and we see her growing up, but it's about the feelings of Rochester, the feelings of Antoinette and how that conflict happens. It's a bit like Romeo and Juliet. I mean, we know it's coming. We know Bertha is doomed at the end of Jane Eyre. So we know that she's probably going to be doomed at the end of this book. The idea of Red Earth, I think is really interesting. When they first meet, Antoinette comments on the Red Earth. She says, quote, the earth is red here, do you notice? And Rochester responds with, it's red in parts of England too. He's kind of trying to show her that England can be a little bit similar to what you know, perhaps. Certainly in Devon, the earth in England can be very red, but it's really that earthy red colour. The red colour reminds me of the fire at Thornfield Hall. And we do have a lot of red associations. Red Earth being probably the most frequent one in, in my thoughts. Rochester comments later in the book, quote, that Red Earth does not dry quickly. And he also says, quote, it was nearly dark when we were back in the red clay path. So there's that red clare again, fire red, the red of the breast of a robin, the red of fire. Anyway, the title, Wide Sargasso Sea, I think is an interesting name for the book. It really, to me, expresses the gulf between Antoinette and Rochester, the gulf between the culture of England and the culture of the Caribbean. It's a very wide sea indeed. We also have the failure of the characters to see below the surface of things, in particular Mr. Mason. Christophine says that Mr. Mason is in love with money. Quote, money have pretty face for everybody, but for that man, money pretty like pretty self. He can't see nothing else. He is a bit blinkered. He can't see below the surface of things. We also have the value to Mr. Rochester of historical accuracy. It's almost a dogma. He's just so keen on this idea of a past and a, a history, a rich history, and how important that is. And I think he clings to it too much. Rochester calls for Emily to stop Daniel's letters from arriving. And when Mr. Rochester asks about Daniel's parentage, which conflicts with his prior information and worldview, he's enraged with her, quote, 
contempt for long ago. This contempt for facts and historical accuracy is yet another way in which Mr. Rochester is creating this concrete immovable view of the surface of things. What do you think? Another interesting idea, colonial naming. Just as countries were renamed to put on their colonial stamp of authority, Mr. Rochester here does exactly the same thing with Antoinette. When he calls her Bertha, she says, quote, my name is not Bertha. Why do you call me Bertha? Rochester responds with, because it's a name I'm particularly fond of. I think of you as Bertha. She resignedly says, it does not matter. It's almost like she's given up the fight. She realises that, quote, words are no use now. He's not really paying attention to words. He has already decided her fate. Now, immediately after the scene, he writes a letter to his friend, Mr. Fraser, warning him about Josephine, Christophine. He attempts to gain power over her by deliberately getting her name wrong in order to try and remove some of her power too. And then later in the chapter, Antoinette says, quote, Bertha is not my name. You're trying to make me into someone else, calling me by another name. I know that's a bear too. We also have in the novel, a fear of medical science, I think, especially to Christophine. To her, it represents a patriarchal and possibly colonialist control channel. Christophine spits on the floor when Rochester says he will consult doctors for Antoinette's best course of treatment. Christophine knows that Antoinette's mother was poorly treated by a supposed scientific or medical community. By declaring her mad, she's worried that the same may happen to Antoinette. It could be argued that these doctors and experts are taking some kind of patriarchal control over the women, just as the witch trials were in previous generations. Christophine does say, quote, those doctors say what you want them to say. In this instance, it's another way in which subjugation can occur. Just a little bit about Reese from the opening of the novel. Reese was born in Dominica in 1890, the daughter of a Welsh doctor and a white Creole mother, and came to England when she was 16. Her first book, a collection of stories called The Left Bank, was published in 1927. This was followed by Quartet, After Leaving Mr. Mackenzie, Voyage in the Dark, and Good Morning Midnight. None of these books was particularly successful, and with the outbreak of war, they went out of print. Reese dropped from sight until nearly 20 years later she was discovered living recusively in Cornwall. During those years she had accumulated the stories collected in Tigers Are Better Looking. In 1966 she made a sensational reappearance with Wide Sargasso Sea which won the Royal Society of Literature Award and the W.H. Smith Award. Her final collection of stories, Sleep It Off Lady, appeared in 1976 and Smile Please, her unfinished autobiography, was published posthumously in 1979. Reese died in 1979. I'd like to talk a little bit now about November's book, The Castle, by Franz Kafka. That's 280 pages. It's published in 1926. If you're reading alongside, I'm going to be reading up to page 136 which is roughly halfway. That begins the chapter, Frida's Reproach. And I really enjoyed the metamorphosis and the trial. It's very strange and out there, Kafka. I know that Kafka is Czech. He worked as a insurance clerk, I think. Yeah, he worked for most of his life as a respected official of a state insurance company. Quite a humdrum job, really, for a internationally famous author. I'm going to read out the opening and give you my thoughts. One, arrival. It was late evening when Kay arrived. The village lay deep in snow. Nothing could be seen of Castle Hill. It was wrapped in mist and darkness. Not a glimmer of light hinted at the presence of the great castle. Kay stood for a long while on the wooden bridge that led from the main road to the village, gazing up into the seeming emptiness. Then he went to look for somewhere to spend the night. 
They were still awake at the inn. The landlord did not have a room to rent, but was willing, the late guest having very much surprised and confused him, to let Kay sleep on a palliasse in the lounge. Kay upsected. A few peasants still sat over their beer, but he did not feel like talking to people. He fetched the palliasse from the attic himself and lay down near the stove. It was warm. The peasants were quiet. He scanned them for a while with tired eyes, then he fell asleep. Shortly afterwards, however, he was woken up. A young man in town clothes with a face like an actor, eyes narrow, eyebrows powerful, stood beside him, accompanied by the landlord. The peasants were still there too. Some had turned their chairs round in order to see and hear better. The young man apologised most courteously for having woken Kay, introduced himself as the son of the castle governor and went on. This village belongs to the castle. Anyone living or spending the night here is in a sense living or spending the night in the castle. No one may do that without a permit from the Count. You, however, possess no such permit, or at least have not produced it. Kay had risen to a seated position and smoothed his hair tidy. He looked up at the people and said, What village have I strayed into? You mean there's a castle here? There certainly is, the young man said slowly, while here and there heads were shaken over Kay. Count Westwest Castle. And you need a permit to spend the night here, Kay asked, as if seeking to convince himself that he had not perhaps dreamed the earlier statements. You need a permit, came the answer, and there was a certain rude mockery in the way the young man held out one arm and asked the landlord and the guests. Or is a permit perhaps not required? Then I shall have to get a permit, Kay said with a yawn, pushing back the blanket as if to rise. Very interesting opening. I liked the comment, uh, face like an actor, our eyes narrow, lovely bit of description. And already I can sense it's quite a lot of bureaucracy involved. The fact that he needs to have a permit and that he's trying to find a castle. Interesting, I wonder if he finds this castle. I'm looking forward to reading that. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you can join me for uh, the castle at the next episode. If you have any questions or comments, I'd really like to hear them. Leave a comment below, or if you're listening, you can send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, let me know. And if you enjoyed this podcast or YouTube video, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you very much. So I look forward to hopefully seeing you on the 11th. That's the second Friday of November. See you then. Mm -hmm.